You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is sponsored by Fidelity Investments. We want you to feel confident about investing so that you can make your money work just as hard as you do. Learn the ropes without the jargon at fidelity.com slash demandmore. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. I want to start this show by asking you a few questions that may actually make you a little uncomfortable, but stick with me. All right, question number one, are you happy with how much you're earning? Number two, how much do you think you're worth? Number three, are you confident advocating for yourself at work? Okay, maybe you already guessed it, but there are no good or correct answers to these questions. There's really only one thing that we can all do to bridge the gap, and that's exactly what we do in every episode of this podcast. We talk about it. The more transparent we can all be about these issues, the more we share with our colleagues, our family, our friends, the better off we're all going to be. And so I'm thrilled today to be able to shed a little light on this topic with Katika Roy. Katika is a gender economist. She's the CEO of Pipeline, which is a software company that helps employers manage everything from the hiring process to performance reviews, and she's in the studio with me from her home in Denver. Katika, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I have to start with what's a gender economist? A gender economist is someone who looks at the economy through the lens of gender. So, for instance, if uh, the jobs report will be coming out this Friday, Mm -hmm. we would look at the jobs report through the lens of, of gender. So how many Women are participating in the labor force. We know that number has increased year over year. We know that right now there are more women with higher education in the labor force. So really looking at it through the lens of gender and understanding how the economy is working or not working for everyone. For everyone, but with an emphasis on women? And men. And men. Yeah. Oh, so and when okay. you look at the economy through the lens of gender, then you can really understand, one, one, is it working for everyone, but also take a data-driven approach to gender equity. And fundamentally, it's about equity for all. Gotcha. How did you decide to become a gender economist? economist. It was probably a long road. I uh, My undergraduate degree is in political science uh, with a legal studies emphasis. So first was introduced to economics, obviously, through my political science degree and always very data-driven. Mm-hmm. And I think most of my career was in sales and so really was very forward-facing in terms of investments in the business and returns and and really flipping that equation from uh, something being a social issue, such as gender equity, to actually a better investment. When you started Pipeline, what was the mission? So I was actually on a radio show for Game Changing Women, and the topic was negotiation and pay. 
And the the host asked us if we ever thought that the pay gap would be closed in our lifetime. And I said, well, not until we make it an economic issue. And then I thought, I think I can solve that. So that was really the idea, that if we move away from gender equity being about the right thing to do or a social issue, but fundamentally an economic opportunity, Mm -hmm. that we could actually shift that conversation. The American Association of University Women predicts that the gender pay gap will not be closed until the year 21. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that? It's true. It is. Yeah. And we have 208 years in in the USA before we reach gender equity. Pay is part of that, but things like equal representation in Congress, CEOs, et cetera. Why is it taking so long? That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, I looked at that study. So yeah. I, I, just, I just wrote a book called Women with Money, and yeah. in it— uh, found a lot of great research about mm-hmm. the amount of money that is flowing into mm-hmm. the hands of women mm-hmm. because of trends in education, mm-hmm. in not just undergrad but graduate school, in inheritances, the fact that we'll live longer so we'll inherit from our husbands as yep. well as from our parents. And then I saw that number and I thought, these two things don't seem like they line up to me. Yeah. So I think you have to, there's a couple things that make a difference, right? So we saw in the last election that we increased the representation of women in Congress by four points. And that's great. We still have 27 points left to go if we're actually going to get to gender equity in political representation. And of course, we've never had a female president in the United States. I know. <laughs> so, and so, and and that actually uh, interplays uh, very much with um, closing the gender equity gap, in, including in economic uh, representation, because women, when women uh, have an input into policies, that actually ties to increased participation of women in the economy. And of course, part of that is wages and and then you can solve things like wealth inequality. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, when women have input into policy, how does it change the landscape? Can you it give does. some examples? Yeah, I can. Um, so <laughs> 1992 was the first election that I could vote in. Um, it was also the first year of the woman. So we called 2018 the year of the woman, but 1992 was the first year of the woman. And uh, that was actually when we elected the most number of women to the United States Senate, which was six which seems like a pretty small number now. But one of the things that we saw was that as there was increased uh, representation of women in Congress, um, things like the... um uh, the F- FMLA, the uh, Medical Leave Act, was passed. That was really the first time in the United States that we had any sort of protections. I mean, it was unpaid, but at least we had protections for leave. We um, we have seen, for instance, just on the House side in this last Congress, things like the uh, Paycheck Fairness Act has mm-hmm. passed the House. So that bars, for instance, employers from asking about previous salary. It, it begins to take some of the inequities out of uh, the system that is actually um, ultimately like holding women back, but ultimately holding everyone back. And a lot of that happens from lived experience, Um, you know, in terms of so probably the most 
recent example that of that was in the first presidential debate with Kamala Harris talking about busing. Mm-hmm. And what made her statement so powerful was not only around the implications, but the fact that it actually impacted her. Yeah, That's the lived experience that women bring went to elected office, and it informs the decisions that they make and how they write policies. And because of that, they write more inclusive policies that ultimately lead to more people, women in particular, participating in the labor force. So what exactly does your company do and how does it help companies lean in, for lack of a better word, to this landscape of fairness. Yeah. So what we found was a couple of things. We found this trend. One was that there is an increasing number of companies that are committed to gender equity, typically through a a public pledge. We hand counted them. There's 3,800 of them. And we also saw a a trend of 78 percent of CEOs saying that gender equity was in their top uh, 10 priorities. And then on the flip side of that, only 22% of employees actually seeing it regularly shared and measured. So sort of this question of, I'm committed to this, but how do I operationalize that commitment? And so what we actually do is it's the company's data Mm -hmm. and our algorithms. So we essentially attach to their systems. And when they are going to make a decision, and there's essentially five buckets of decisions that you make about your talent. So hiring, pay, performance, potential, and promotion. So you post a job requisition, you write a performance review. We, that actually then goes through the pipeline platform, and we debias those uh, four companies. So you debias those before. You might debias a performance review before it goes to the employee. Exactly. How What do you take out? So we do two things in the performance review module. One is we actually use natural language processing to read through the performance reviews. So we call out bias phrases, and then we make recommendations to change them. And then the second piece is we calibrate the ratings themselves. And essentially what that means is to make sure that all of the performance reviews are are applied equitably. Because what we found through our implementations is that, on average, women are underrated for similar performance 4% of the time. That's unbelievable. I guess it's not unbelievable. I mean, I guess I guess it's not at all unbelievable, but it's just it's a, it's a shame. It is a shame. And it's also we're losing money. So we actually came from just when we started Pipeline, we actually did a research study across 4,000 companies in 29 countries. And what we found was that for every 10 percent increase in gender equity toward parity, toward 50-50, and we measure that a- across different key indicators, mm-hmm. there's a 1 to 2 percent increase in revenue. So this idea that if you're the fiduciary of your company, you're a CEO, you're supposed to maximize shareholder value, this is a really key lever that you can pull to make that happen. Talk to me about the pay module. What are you looking at in the pay module, and how are you helping companies level that playing field? Yeah, so what's really interesting is that we have found through our implementations is that if you want to close the gender pay gap, you can't start with pay. So where do you start? You start with performance. Okay. So pay is the quantitative value that you place on your talent. In other words, it's the symptom, not the disease. Mm -hmm. The value decisions that you make about your talent before that, typically in performance and potential, then are inputs into essentially calculating how much you're going to pay somebody and how you're going to promote them. 
One of the pieces of research that I looked at for the book was looking at male and female founders who Mm -hmm. were trying to raise money Money. for their companies. And women are judged, I'm going to get this wrong, but women are judged on what they've done. And men are given a lot more credit for potential. That's right. Yeah, we judge women. And that happens. That's a phenomenon that also happens in performance reviews, which um, which also then uh, feeds into the next decision, which is potential. That is, we judge women based on their past performance and we judge men based on their future potential. So all of this is infuriating (laughs) and fascinating. (laughs) But I want to dig into as a woman who may work for a company that doesn't have pipeline at its back. At least not yet. Yeah. Or a small company that doesn't Mm -hmm. even have an HR department. Yeah. How do we as women help other women rise, but also how do we advocate for ourselves? But before we do that, I just want to remind everyone that this fascinating conversation is brought to you, like all of her money, by Fidelity Investments. And you don't have to know all the answers when it comes to your financial future, but a really important question to ask yourself is what do you want from your money? What are your financial goals? No matter where we're meeting you on your financial journey, Fidelity is here to help you reach those goals faster. And it all starts with a financial checkup and an understanding of what you own and what you owe. From there, the folks at Fidelity can work with you to evaluate your investment options and ways to grow your savings. Discuss your goals, see where you stand, get help taking the next step at fidelity.com slash demand more. We are talking gender economics with the CEO of Pipeline, Katika Roy. Okay. So let's help people here. Sure. You're a woman. Maybe you're a guy. I mean, we know we have guys listening to the show because occasionally they write us and they say, hey, I'm a guy. What do we do in order to level the playing field for ourselves? We'll first realize that it's not level. That would be the first thing. Okay. So, And I think that's actually one of the ways that we mislead young women and girls is that we tell them half the story. That is, we tell them they can be anything they want to be, but we don't give them the tools to understand the system that they're stepping into. So what should we be telling them instead? We should be telling them that, uh, for instance, you may be evaluated based on your past performance, not your future potential. Here are ways to help people see you in that future role. Give me a few. So, for instance, um, one of the things, so be very data-driven, like in terms of document everything that you've done and you've accomplished and what the value of that is to the company that you work for. Isn't that also backwards looking? Well, and then it is. (laughs) But then you can also, uh, then you can then attach it to what's the future, where is the company going it's yeah. like a how much will my savings be worth calculator. Yes. I've already yes. done this for you. But if, right. you, if you just look and out six months and a year, year and two years and, into the right. future, this is going to be worth right. so much money. Yeah. So how can your past performance attach to the future of the company? All right. What else? Well, I mean, I would say negotiate, but we know that women negotiate as much as men. They just don't win as much. So, And why is that? Because I've Read a lot of studies studies. that say that women don't negotiate. And I've seen those, and I've seen the ones that say that women negotiate as much. We just win half as often, and two-thirds of the time, 
we have there's a negative perception of us as pushy, like we're we're stepping outside of our traditional gender role. Um, so, so how do you advise women to negotiate? Yeah, so I typically work on flipping the system so that it actually values women, right, equally to men. But I, what I can tell you is from my own experience, a lot of my negotiation has been around trying to put the other person on the same side of the table as me and putting whatever issue it is, whether it's a salary or a, whatever that, an opportunity on the other side of the table, that we are together in this rather than it's a, like it's a win-win situation versus a win-lose situation. There are other inequities in the system, too, mm -hmm. uh, big ones um, based on race. Can you talk yeah. about that? Well, any—yes, I can. Anytime that we—so we're gender first, not gender only. And anytime you um, attach gender to any other type of diverse demographic, whether that's race and ethnicity or even age, so women over the age of 45. Hello. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> Um, you, uh, you're, those women are typically farther behind. And I think that's, um, that's something we don't talk about enough. So for instance, right now, uh, we haven't even recognized in 2019 Latinas Equal Pay Day. Wow. They have to work almost an extra year versus white women. It's later in April. It's not equal pay day, but because they make up so much of the denominator, essentially, the cohort, uh, they are closer to April. And black women's equal pay day is typically in August. So it's they're even farther behind in terms of economic opportunity and um, and economic equality. And I think that's one of the criticisms also that has been levied against gender equity and the gender equity movement or conversation is that it's often if you don't explicitly talk about race and ethnicity, then it becomes about white women, not about inclusion of all women. How about inclusion of people who identify as non-binary? Yeah, that, and that's definitely something we are seeing increase. So, for instance, the generation that's just coming into the workforce, Gen Z, my kids are Gen Z. It's not the majority, but it's a large proportion of uh, that uh, that generation that actually identifies as non-binary or knows someone who identifies as non-binary. So there's actually a huge push now for governments. So, for instance, on driver's licenses to have non-binary, the EEOC yesterday just gathered demographic data and and so it was male, female, non-binary. And so we're starting to see more of those trends come to pass. How does that impact salary and fairness within the workforce? You know, that's a good question. And I don't know that overall we have enough data yet to evaluate that, to be perfectly honest. Non-binary is something that we include in our platform, but we simply haven't seen enough of a cohort of it to be of, of non-binary folks to actually be able to evaluate it accurately. We know that, for instance, um, uh, lesbian women are tend to be farther behind straight women. So we know that there is some data there to say that if you're sort of more than one step out of kind of the common archetype, you're farther behind. One of the things that we talk about a lot in our office, on our website, also on this show, is the wisdom of sharing numbers, sharing mm -hmm. salaries, sharing how much you've got in your 401k. Mm -hmm. Wh where do you shake out on this kind of transparency? 
sharing it? Yeah. Do you think, I mean, we know more young people will share, at least yeah. in their early years in the workforce. Is this a good thing? Is it not a good thing? Does it help companies? Does it hurt? It's actually a good thing. September 30th was the first time in U.S. history when the EEOC actually gathered data pay by gender and race and ethnicity on their EEO-1 form, so it was component 2. And unfortunately, they're not planning on releasing any of that data, not even on an aggregate level, which is unfortunate because since 1966, they have shared the demographic data that they have gathered. So why are they not releasing it? They haven't stated why. Wow. We don't know why. But they have it. They have it. Yeah, they have it. So it's 63 thousand employers in the U.S. that have reported this information that fall under this rule, and we won't be able to see it. And and what's interesting about the way that the EEOC gathered that data is it's in 10 occupational categories, and each occupational category has uh, 12 salary ranges. So when you're talking about being able to analyze the data, there's a lot of really interesting, even at an aggregate level, that you could look at. On an individual level, mm-hmm. um, why do you say it's a good thing? And, it, and I'm with you, by the way, yeah. I do think I think it's an uncomfortable thing sometimes, of course. but I think having information is largely good. Yeah, it is. And it also tends to demystify it. So I wrote an article last year about, I think the title was something like, Want Gender Equity, Pay Transparency is the First Step, something like that. Like Whole Foods. Whole Foods is an example of a company where they had pay transparency. We know, for instance, there was a cohort of Google employees that started pay transparency. Mm-hmm. And when we, and a Buffer is a company that has complete pay transparency. And when we actually are transparent about salaries, then it actually is a first step toward making them more equitable because you're demystifying it. To some extent, Interestingly enough, you've seen in some situations where the pay gap may not be as bad as we think it is. So that's good. Yeah. Right. So that's actually a positive. And then, two, you actually see a collective of advocating for for more equitable pay that when people know this, they will rally around together for more equitable pay for everyone. So it's also better for companies. I think there's often this false narrative of sort of the employee versus the employer. Mm-hmm. We tend we tend to that narrative tends to get thrown around quite a bit. But in actual fact, if you look at it through the economic lens, it's actually just it's better for everyone, including employers. So here's a story. I was a poli-sci major, undergrad, legal studies emphasis, and I was an intern in D.C. in college. And I worked for the California State University Office of Federal Relations. I spent a lot of time up on the Hill. And as a poli-sci major, it was really the first time that I learned about women's rights. I didn't learn much about that in high school, a little bit about the suffrage movement, nothing else. But then I started to really untangle what all this meant and then graduated and went into the workforce in D.C. and thought, well, I'm not really sure if all this applies to me today, right? Yeah. So this was in the mid-90s and thought, you know, I don't, I don't know if what, I mean, I loved Gloria Steinem. I got to meet her, but I thought, you know, I had her books. I just thought, I don't know. I don't really see this. And then uh, I was on maternity leave with my daughter and, um, and my boss was optimized, which is a fancy word for fired. Mm. <laughs> and I, I was managing a team and I came back and they, a day after I came back, they asked me to take over another team. And I thought, well, this is perfect. I'm now the breadwinner for a family of four. My husband is a stay-at-home dad. And then two weeks later, they asked me to take over a third team. Wow. And I was like, okay, this is great. But you got to pay me. Yeah. <laughs> like, you got to pay. And so, and my male colleague 
um, was asked to take on one additional team, and he also received additional compensation for that team. So he was a pay grade higher than I was, and I knew that because our titles were different, and he received an additional compensation. So people asked me, how do you know? And I said, I just assumed they were paying him more. So I asked him, and he told me. And so I went to HR and I said, hey, you know, super, like, I'm very excited about this opportunity. How do you want to make me whole on my pay grade and on my pay? Nothing. Like crickets for two months. And I figured out that they were just trying to hope that I would go away. I mean, at least I assumed that's what it was. And so because I was had been in D.C. and I'd um, been a litigation paralegal, so I knew how to do research, I thought, uh, there has got to be a law that makes this illegal, and I'm going to go find it. <laughs> so I did a bunch of legal research, and I found the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. And so I called HR and said, this is a Lilly Ledbetter issue. Every time you pay me, the statute of limitations starts over. What do you want to do about it? And they changed my pay grade, changed my pay, and gave me back pay. But it was the first time for me that really explicitly, I mean, I had experienced other things, but really explicitly that I had experienced that sense of, like, I had worked hard. I had graduated at the top of my class in my master's degrees. I had won awards. I had, you know, I had, I was a top performer. I was chosen for this role, and they didn't want to pay me. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I wonder if I'm alone in this. That, that was truly my thought. And I think also being a breadwinner mom, sort of, there's just not a lot of people, women, to talk to. Right. Right? And her book came out right after that. And and I read her book cover to cover, and I thought, oh my gosh, I am not alone. This is a massive problem. And that was really the first time that one, that I realized how big of a problem it was. Plus, I had also inherited two other teams. I made sure that my people were always paid equitably. I inherited all of the inequities of the other teams. And so I set about you know, with a commitment that if you worked for me, I was going to do whatever I could to make sure that you got paid equitably. Amazing. So for me, she was like, yeah, <laughs> it's like this realization Speaking, that like, right? yeah, that like, oh, my gosh, this is happening everywhere. And it's, you know, I was like a mid-level manager in a company in a huge company. Right. I was very much like I am not alone and I need to do something about this. Well, And how smart of you to, you know, to do the research, to realize this is what it is and to just put it out there, because I'm sure you put it out there exactly the same way you just said it to me. I did, this yeah. is a Lily Ledbetter issue. And every time you pay me, the clock resets. Done. Right. No threat. No nastiness. No nothing. Just Mm-mm. fact. Yeah. And I didn't have to go through a lawsuit, which was helpful. Right. right. I mean, you know, I just was a matter. I mean, that would have been a lot more expensive. So. I want to wrap up um, with the pink tax. I I heard an interview with you a few weeks ago where you said women specifically were being adversely affected by tariffs that Mm -hmm. we have right now in the U.S. Can you tell us a little bit more about tariffs and import taxes as they're they're often called and the pink tax specifically and, and what that does to us? Yeah, of course. So often when we talk about, just to preface it, often when we talk about the pay gap, we are talking about money coming in to women's wallets. That's one leg of the three-legged stool. There are two others. Student loans is one because women hold the majority of student loans. And the other is the pink tax. That is, there's more money coming out of our wallets. So the pink tax is essentially women paying more for everyday items. So we know that 50% of the time women pay 7% more for items. So that could be razors, mm-hmm. shaving cream, dry cleaning, anything that has a Please. gender to My it. My shampoo is 
beyond expensive. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Right. So that's an example. But part of the pink tax is actually import taxes. And of course, that has been a fairly hot topic because of the tariff war Mm -hmm. right now. But in American families, 75 percent of the tariff burden that hits U.S. households is actually for apparel um, and footwear. And women bear 65 percent of that tariff burden. And it's not just because we buy more clothes. It's because our clothes are more more, expensive. And they are taxed at at an average higher rate. So in the tariff schedule, uh, they're part of the statistical calculation that they use to calculate the tariffs. Part of that is gender. It's part of the calculation. And so on average, sometimes men pay more, but on average, men pay 11.9% in tariffs and women pay 15.1%. Is there anything that we can do about this? Yes, we can lobby Congress to change it. So either they remove gender as part of the tariff calculation or they choose to use whatever is the lower tariff rate on those items. Lastly, you teed this up, so I'm going to go there. Student loans. Yeah. Why is it that women hold the disproportionate amount of student loans? There's two main reasons. One is the gender pay gap. That is, there's less money coming into our wallets, so we can't pay off those loans as quickly as men. So it's continue. It's not necessarily the original amount borrowed? That is part of it. Let me just go back to the numbers. So Women acquire 57% of all bachelor's degrees and higher in the U.S., but they hold 67% of all student loans. So let me start with that that number, right? So we've got a 10-point gap. When you look at the students coming out of college yeah. each year, is it that if if women are getting 57% of the bachelor's degrees in any given year— as they come out of school, do they have 57% of the debt? And no, does they have that more. Num- they do. And that, so why— yeah, That's the second reason. Why is that? So the second reason is because they are less. They, their uh, parents are less likely to save as much money for their, uh, for their daughter's education as for their son's. I'm going to have to go have, like, two drinks after this podcast. <laughs> so if you look at this from a personal financial perspective— I have student loans, and I'm a breadwinner mom for a family of four. What if I could take my student loan money that I pay, which Mm -hmm. is not an insubstantial amount of money. I have two master's degrees, which I paid for. What if I could put that money into a retirement account? And what if I did that? I'm 45. What if I did that when I was 25 or maybe 29? Think about the amount of savings that we could actually accumulate over time if we weren't putting this heavy burden, particularly on the backs of women. And then, anyway, and you look at the connection between that and women twice as likely to live in poverty uh, when they're retired, and all of these pieces are connected. Katika Roy, you'll have to come back because I have a feeling that there is just so much more to dig into with you. Thank you. Well, it was, I would love to come back. All right. We will be right back with Catherine, your mailbag, and a big bottle of Chardonnay. I've got a new crush. Yeah, she's amazing. Catherine Tuggle from HerMoney.com has joined me in the studio. So you saw Katika speak at where? We were on Yahoo Finance together on their live stream. Wi-Fi PM. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She's amazing. We instantly hit it off in the green room. We started talking, and I said, what do you do? And uh, I was like, oh, okay. 
All right. For coming on the podcast. Exactly. Well, thank you for thank you for bringing her to us. I just found myself getting more and more frustrated with all of her knowledge and statistics. Not her knowledge, because her knowledge is fantastic, but just I mean, every time I come across that stat from the American Association of University Women, I just figure, ugh, things will change. And what she's saying is things are not really going to change unless companies change them. Right. I mean, it's tough hearing from someone like her, right? Because we think that, yes, we're fighting an uphill battle, but we're fighting the good fight and we're we're doing what's right. But then she comes in and says, you know what? The change has to come from corporations. And that's disheartening. But at the same time, we know that there are more females in positions of leadership in companies. Every year. Every year. So almost it's it's discouraging. But at the same time, we have the right ingredients to get where we need to go. Yeah, I'm going to hold on to that. Okay, a little note of optimism coming out of there. What do we have from our mailbag? Our first question comes to us from Ipula, and it is short, sweet and to the point. She says, how long into dating someone should you wait before talking about financial issues? Thanks so much. I think it depends on how the dating is going. And we all know somebody who met somebody and 30 days later they were engaged and they have had a long and happy life together. And we also all know somebody who's been dating the same person for 10 years and it doesn't look like they're merging their lives anytime soon. It depends on the relationship. And I think to have a rule, you know, and akin to, okay, I'm going to wait till the third date before I sleep with you, is a little disingenuous. you got to be able to say, this is getting serious. Because finance and money are, are a difficult topic, right? They are a serious topic. And you can learn a lot by, as my mother says, using your eyes and using your ears before you actually have to tee up the conversation. So I think you discuss it as soon as you suspect that it's getting serious enough that their finances are going to matter in your financial life and your finances are going to matter in theirs. Does that make sense? It does. It does. What if you have something that's a deal breaker? If you know that if somebody has $200,000 in student loans, that you do not want to pursue a relationship? I think you probably can figure out if they have student loans. I don't know if you can figure out the amount, but I think you could probably figure out what their pain points are based on how they handle their lives pretty early on. And I may be wrong about this in some cases. I think dropping a nugget or two about your own life You know, I'm really fortunate. I was able to go through college and only come out with 20,000 in student loans. And God, it's a pain, but I write that check every month. And I'm, I'm looking forward to being done with it in six years and hope they start to offer things up. If you suspect that they are, um, earning a really nice living, But underspending tremendously and not seeing a lot come from that, you might be able to sort of filter out that they've got other obligations, whether it's child support or student loan debt or whatever. I think sort of watching and listening will give you some signals, and then you can ask. I mean, you you know, if you offer up a fact about your own life, I think you can ask about the same fact 
from the person you're dating if that's something that you know is really a deal breaker for you. Good advice. The give and take, right? I, I think so. I mean, that's how I've always done it as a reporter. When did you talk about money with your husband? It's a great question. It seemed to flow organically. We never had like one big money chat, really. Yeah. And for me and Elliot as well, I mean, I think he knew going in. He actually did know going in because I had asked him when we just knew each other through publishing circles. I had asked him to help me negotiate a contract because that's what he did for a living. So he knew exactly what I was making. Um, And he knew that he was making less. And so, you know, I mean, it was very clear from the time that we started dating that I was the greater breadwinner in the relationship. Right. Um, It's nice when it happens organically and you don't have to have the big money sit down before you're at a personal level of intimacy. I think you're right. Yeah. All right. Good question. Short question, long answer. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Our next one comes to us from Grace, who writes, Hi, Jean. Love the podcast and Women With Money. Thanks for all you do to empower women. Some background. I'm 31 years old and make about $45,000 a year at a nonprofit. Prior to this job, I was a state employee and I was required to pay into the state pension program each month. When I left the job, I had about $4,000 in contributions, but I didn't stay long enough to vest and I decided to roll the money into a traditional IRA and make post-tax contributions of $100 per month. I'm also currently making pre-tax contributions to a 403B with my current employer at $200 a month. There is no company match offered. I've been doing this for about a year and a half now, but I'm wondering if my money would be better off in only one account, and if so, which one? Thanks again. So for administrative ease, I would lean toward the 403B with your employer. The money is coming out of your paycheck automatically. It's going in. You might want to bump up your contribution by the additional 100 that you're putting into the IRA and put that into the 403B instead as long as you are happy with the um, investment alternatives that you're being offered in this plan. But I'm also curious about the fact that you're making – post-tax contributions of $100 a month to a traditional IRA. If you're putting money into a traditional IRA, that should be pre-tax contributions or contributions on which you get a tax deduction. Otherwise, you should be putting that money into a Roth IRA with post-tax money. That money will grow tax-free forever, and you'll have a lot of leeway about whether you do or don't want to pull it out in retirement, but either way, you'll never have to pay taxes on that money again. So should you decide either that you want to stay with two accounts or that you like the option of having a Roth. And by the way, I like the option of having a Roth. I like the option of having some choice about where to pull that money from in retirement and Being able to pull some money out of a Roth for education or to buy a first home is another nice benefit. I would make that account outside of your 403B a Roth rather than a traditional IRA. Does that make sense? It does. So she should put the money that's currently in the IRA into the 403B? She can leave it in the IRA. That's fine. I mean, it's as long as it's not costing you a lot of money— you probably will just leave the money that's in the IRA. I'm, th- I'm really focused on the new contributions. Right. And, and 
Continue to contribute to the 403B. If you think you can do more and you want to do more and you like the options in that account, then you can shut down the contributions to the IRA for now and just put more into the 403B. Or you can decide that you want some money in a Roth and put money there instead. Mm -hmm. I think I get a little too heavily focused on doing something with old accounts so that you don't lose them, right? As long as they're invested, as long as the money is growing, you don't have to. If you end up with a lot of orphan retirement accounts all over the place, I like the idea of rolling them all together into one rollover IRA or at least into accounts with the same firm so that you can go into their portal and you can see everything on the same page and make sure it's all in balance. I think that's important, but she's not really talking about that many right. accounts here. She's talking about one inside her company's plan and one outside, and I'm okay with that. Cool. Yeah. Our last note comes to us from Anne in Alabama. So hi, y'all, to Anne. She writes, Hey, ladies, I have enjoyed the episodes and articles on the FIRE movement. I especially enjoyed when Jean got a little sassy and pointed out that traditional retirement planning isn't wrong. It's just a different option. Here's my question. In the traditional retirement saving and investing model, you change your asset allocations as you get closer to your retirement date and then get very conservative with your investments once you're retired. How does asset allocation work in FIRE? Do you have to stay super aggressive with your investments forever and just change your spending to mirror market conditions? Thanks, Anne. So, Anne, I have to admit I wasn't exactly sure about this. We checked in with Scott Rickens, who is the producer of Playing With Fire, the documentary film that we did a show about earlier this year. And Scott basically advises a philosophy that he says comes from J.L. Collins, who wrote the book The Simple Path to Wealth. And that is, yes, being flexible with the withdrawal rate. And, and that, by the way, is important for everybody in and around retirement. When you are trying to adhere to the 4% rule, pulling 4% from your portfolio to try to make it last throughout your retirement, in a year when the market is down, your 4% is going to be less, and you've got to make sure that you are taking less in those years. In years when the market is up, you can allow yourself to take a little bit more, and the nice news is that retirees are showing us they are resilient like that. They're able to spend a little less when they have to, spend a little more when they can. In terms of the FIRE crowd specifically, they subscribe to the idea that if you're looking for the closest thing to a sure bet, you want to assume that inflation will rise, keep your withdrawal rate a little bit under 4%, and hold 75% stocks and 25% bonds. And J.L. Collins says that that tends to hold up over time. If you're a little more risk-averse, you may want to bump the 25% in bonds to 30 or 35% in order to allow for a smoother transition. And if you're able to be flexible on the date that you are going to take that financial independence, then you can be even more heavily weighted towards stocks, knowing that you might push it off a year or two if the markets have a down year. 
But that's the way to go with that. And thanks so much for a great question. Thanks, Catherine. Of course. Thanks. And we encourage anybody to submit their questions at mailbag at hermoney.com. Great. And in today's Thrive, if a child in your life is thinking about where they'll head to college, chances are you are already hearing a lot about college application season, which means campus visits. These visits can be so much fun for the students and, yes, for the parents, but they are also fraught with problems of the financial variety. By the time you add up the cost of things like gas, hotels, meals, and airfare, the cost of the visit can easily top $1,000 and maybe more if additional family members want to go or if the school is particularly far away. There are ways, though, to keep the costs down. Many counselors advise starting near home and looking at schools that are within just a few hours' drive so an overnight stay isn't necessary. Some schools offer virtual tools on their websites, which your kids can take first before you get on the road. If your child loves what they see, then you can have a bigger conversation about packing bags and going for real. Also, if your child is from an underrepresented racial or socioeconomic group, there's a chance that their dream school may offer a free fly-in visit. Give the admissions office a call to ask. And finally, stay away from the campus bookstore. Really, purchasing college swag can be really tempting, but it can also be really costly. So rather than seeing collegiate gear from every school as a souvenir, make a deal with your child that you'll spring for clothing once they get in. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Katika Roy for the great conversation. I loved talking to her and hope to do it again soon. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Tune in next week for a very special Thanksgiving show. We've got Mitch Album coming into the studio to talk to us about his new book, Finding Chica. It'll be a treat. We'll talk soon. <laughs>